So I was thinking about today's topic, and this came into my mind. What came into your mind, Lewis? Uh, na, 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 na. What the hell are you doing right now? <laughs> Can we say that on this podcast? Sure. Let's leave I mean, it in. If you could see the confused look on my face. I mean, okay, so 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 <laughs> listeners, I know that we kind of have an edge. We can be a little sarcastic. But if you had been here in the room watching this happening, you would totally not fault me. That was beautifully done. What were you doing, Lewis? Hey, in, what were you doing, Lewis? In 1990. Hey, Lewis. Hey. What were you doing? Lewis. 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 Just singing. In 19. In 1996, I visited my mother's family in Okinawa, Japan. And we were in a bowling alley. And this song was playing. And from what I could gather, seeing it on the TV, it was on the top 10 and it was falling off. And so that was the last time it was on when we were visiting. That was it. I heard it once. But it was that catchy hook in the chorus that I just... So this is an Okinawan song? It's a J-pop song, right? <laughs> that's the Japanese pop and K-pop's yeah. the Korean pop. Yeah, that's so the big no thing. there's no O-pop? They just do the J-pop? There's no Okinawa pop? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, K-pop's the big thing now. Anyway. I didn't know the words, right? All I had is the, no, 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 the, the thing I did. Yeah. And so you can't Google that, right? <laughs> I mean, back in 96, you didn't have that stuff, but yeah. yeah. We had Yahoo, maybe. We barely had Google in 96. Yeah. 2018, 22 years later, I visit my family in Okinawa. No way. I'm sitting around and I said, this has been bugging me. Yeah. For 22 years. And I looked at my family and I sang that. I said, anybody know this? And all the, all the youngsters are looking at me. Like, what are you talking about? And uh, my older cousin-in-law, Hisashi, said, oh, Robinson, Spitzio. That's awesome. <laughs> and so if you want to know what that song that I was trying to sing was, yeah. it's called Robinson by a Japanese group called Spitz, S-P-I-T-Z. It's a nice, pretty song. But just like that, 22 years like it was nothing. And that's Telephone. <laughs> you know, I got to say, at this point, I'm really starting to get freaked out at just how many different places we go. <laughs> we are living up to our namesake. By goodness, we are. Oh, my goodness. Listeners, if you're just joining us, this is 10,000 Places. I hope you're not. You're probably not because podcasts are what they are. But, man, what a lovely story, actually. <laughs> Lewis, that is heartwarming. Thank you. And a fantastic intro to our podcast, 10,000 Places, where a theologian, a philosopher, and a campus minister walk into a room and then go many places, many, many, many places, all in search of the one God who is Christ our Lord. May his name be praised forever and ever. Amen. My name is Alex Giltner. I'm Justin Aquila. And I'm Lewis Pearson. Welcome to today's episode is the testimony of Scripture trustworthy? Today's episode, and pretty much all of them at this point, are brought to you by our sponsor, our only sponsor so far, who uh, wants to remain anonymous. And per his sponsorship, he just wants us to tell you that make sure that you've got Catholic funeral in your will if you're Catholic and want to be buried properly in the Catholic Church. Because maybe, I don't know the story, but maybe it doesn't always work out that way. So Imagine not. Yeah, you need to do that. I think for family harmony afterwards, I've seen this happen. Oh, yeah, that's a great point. I think 
our sponsor sees this enough yeah. or maybe personally aware or aware in the community. But yeah, it's good to let people know these things for the sake of harmony because you never know when you're going to go. So now you've seen how good we are at, you know, getting sponsorships. Like that was a great ad for getting your Catholic funeral in your will. Yeah. I mean, we're pleased to help advertise uh, yeah. local business and even local messages. And yeah. if you want us to do a, a topic, I think we'd be open to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in fact, you don't even like donate or anything. You can always just, you know, ask for a topic. And then, yeah, we're always open to sponsorship or we can do announcements. We can do all kinds of things. Okay. Yeah. We're three guys with a mic. <laughs> we have unlimited power. I'm kind of overstating it. We just need a turntable. So the reliability of scripture makes me think about the game of telephone. That's also why this opening Everybody story. Always, okay, really quick. I know. I teach an online class and it's at SLU and we deal with the scripture and they all say this thing. Oh, you know, we can't really know because like scripture, like who knows like where it went and what people put it. We don't even know who wrote it. And plus, like, have you ever played the game of telephone? <clears throat> Like they've done something. Like we're all supposed to go like, yeah, telephone. Well, I guess we need to give up the Bible. There's so many reasons this is old hat, right? I mean, for one, the game of telephone is predicated on intentionally not being understood <laughs> by the person next That's to you. That's what makes it funny. Ex exactly, right? So what proof do you get that you're going to have 10 people in a line who are trying not to be understood? Or to at then... least don't care if they're understood. Sure, yeah. To then hear what happens at the end, right? As opposed to what happens when someone thinks the most important thing in the history of the universe has happened. I'm going to tell everyone about it. I'm going to do it every week. I'm going to write it down. I said it would be more accurate if you wanted a metaphor for what we get with the Christian tradition. If you're going to play a game of telephone like this, the first person yells at the top of his lungs with very clear diction exactly what he wants people to hear, and he writes it down, <laughs> and everyone following does the exact same thing. Yep. Not only will you have the last person probably have it memorized before you even get to the person, but everyone in line will know to correct that person because everyone heard it. So, I mean, the metaphor fails in the first place, but I saw exactly how much the game of telephone itself actually implicitly relies on the reliability of testimony when I saw my kids play this game. So there's currently nine of us crowded around the table. So we don't have to try hard to play telephone. So the kids just reach over and we get to the last one. The kid says, you know, what he thinks he heard. And everyone says, well, what is it that we started with? And at the time, the five-year-old had started it. So what did you say? He said, I don't remember. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> what you said is funny. And we said, well, I mean, what, yeah, what your last sibling said is funny. But the reason it's supposed to be funny really is <laughs> what did you say that doesn't sound like that anymore? I don't know. <laughs> right, so the only reason telephone is a funny game is because we assume when we ask the first person what he started with, we can still trust him. Right. And he will remember what he said. So you can't even have this funny game without testimony being the implicit undergirding reality. Mm. Well, it just occurred to me now, too, like the very fact that the game of telephone is almost universally known is because of oral testimony. Yeah. This is a game that's handed down through usually children. And then adults kind of co-opt it. The game itself isn't meant to denigrate the authenticity of scripture, let's say, or oral tradition, but the reliability of witnesses. It's a great point, right? I don't know who has read the telephone objection to scripture. <laughs> and I think one of the, it's maybe too meta, you know, above, but you might say, 
interesting that you're using the metaphor of telephone to explain why we can't trust scripture. Where did you get that from? Right. It's probably something that you heard from somebody else. It's, it's, <laughs> it's amazing that the same silly objection is preserved intact oh, from one good. person to yes. the next. Yes, wow. yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's also inconsistent with the way human beings learn, which mm. is there's a lot of good information about how we actually learn our memory, what embeds in our memory is rooted and tied to our emotions. So one can imagine, for example, the most important, I think, testimony from all of Scripture, if you're a Christian, is the testimony about the resurrection of Jesus. So I was once challenged with this question. It says, what would happen if it came out that Jesus, we found his body and he didn't rise? And almost instinctually, I responded, I would become Jewish. I mean, the questioner was assuming I would say something like, oh, maybe Jesus rose spiritually in the hearts of his disciples or something like that. But for me and my integrity— I would cease to become a Christian if they found Jesus' body. Because it would be false. The whole testimony of Jesus would fall apart Absolutely. for me. Because that is what it is to be a Christian. Right. I and mean, it, Paul says something super similar yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. in 1 Corinthians I, 15. If Jesus had not risen from our dead, then our testimony would be in vain. And we would be the most pitiable. pitiable. Yep. Yeah. I'm going down to my local synagogue because I believe in the veracity of the Old Testament. Right. And uh, get myself circumcised, and we're going to go from there, metaphorically. <laughs> I don't know if I just learned something about Justin or not. I learned you're not going to the Reformed Jewish synagogue. I, I learned that. <laughs> oh, no. I go full Hasidic. <laughs> I don't know if we should keep that in. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. People who ask that question, maybe they're inquiring. They, they really don't understand, though. Like, your reaction is the proper reaction. Like, if the resurrection didn't happen, Christianity is bereft the house of, cards, of its value. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. And so it's important to think about the testimony, I think, of the disciples and the women at the tomb who handed this on, and it spread like wildfire, or even the, the Gospels attest to this in the Acts of the Apostles. But you can imagine the emotional impact of recognizing that the man who they had followed around for a number of years, and if you're his mother, your own son, has died. Like all the hope that you've had about the messianic hopes, the friendships, the personal thing, and and someone came to you and said, that man who you saw die on the cross, or you heard about died on the cross, is actually alive. The emotional impact of that would be immense. That would be deeply rooted in your psyche. It would not be like the game of telephone in which some insignificant thing that you are not emotionally attached to is passed around for a second. We know that like the resurrection of Jesus, I mean, even like John Levinson, a a Jewish scholar, has rightly argued in his book, The Resurrection, no, The Sacrifice of the Son of God. It's something like that. He writes very clearly in the first chapter how the testimony of the early church was what that this guy literally rose from the dead. If you look at all the different explanations for why Jesus rose from the dead, you know, whether it was a mass hallucination or, you know, the disciples lied or the body was eaten or there was, you know, he was resuscitated, which is like uniquely ridiculous among a bunch of really ridiculous arguments. 
they all argue with each other about which of their terrible theories is right, too. <laughs> and they say, this guy's an idiot because he doesn't understand that recitation is true. Now, here, my theory, I'm peddling mass hallucination. And then another guy comes and says, but anyway, so this gets us to the deeper problem that would seem to arise, which is, yeah, but how do we know testimony is trustworthy? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So we know that telephone is a terrible metaphor yeah. because, I mean, let's think about just the Old Testament, right? The Exodus narrative. There's a story that is deep to these people, and it defines their entire identity, their law, their whole way of life is tied to this event. And then somebody writes it down, and then it's not like telephone. Whisper something half intelligible at all into someone's ear and then pass it on. It's, okay, write that. This is the oral tradition. We know a lot about oral traditions and how accurate they are. Now write it down. Okay, let me read it. You messed up. Do it again. You got it right this time. Good. Now yeah. go give that to the next person and they'll write it down. It is a highly controlled process. This process and the emotional impact, Justin, you talk about, I think helps to put our minds in the proper arena when we're thinking about what kind of thing this is. Because I think to be charitable, we have also had experiences where I said something to someone and I hear back what I said yeah. and it's not right. So we all understand what this looks like in our relationships. Yeah, a lot of times the message doesn't get conveyed properly and we're upset because something was, you know, lost as it moved along the chain. But this is a different kind of thing. This is why we're not saying that everything you say is always completely understood and communicated perfectly. That's not the point here, right? Yeah, I mean, if you do want to sail testimony, you're going to run into some serious problems. For example, where did you learn that testimony could be fallible? You know, this came out in the, our diagnosis of the telephone game. You probably learned that because somebody told you that. Because that's how you have probably like 70 to 90% of your knowledge is because somebody that you trust told you. Mm-hmm. You know, either they told me directly or something I heard at time one didn't match what I heard from time two. I inferred, wait, I can't. Right. Yeah. But I'm using testimony to test testimony. Oh, yeah. Right. And so, like, if you ask somebody, what's the elemental symbol for water? They're going to tell you H2O. Can you imagine being like, no, prove it, because I'm not going to trust you until you prove it. How do you know? Because you were taught that. But you've never isolated the compound of two hydrogen, one oxygen to prove that that is the composition of water. G.E.M. Anscombe, fantastic philosopher, wrote a very short bit on Hume and Julius Caesar, because Hume was the one who really put in the water that we need these empirical facts to justify anything that we say. And what she did was she said, if you are monumentally skeptical about anything that is testimony, which is funny because just as a side note, Hume berates testimony for history. But then when it comes to how we know miracles didn't happen, it's because testimony. (laughs) But then we have to, of course, dismiss every testimony that testifies to miracles because Miracles can't happen. So people talk about his miracle argument being really good. It's actually garbage. It's terrible. Uh, and Hume, listeners, if you ah, yes. think about our Enlightenment episode, is a major thinker of the Enlightenment. Right. He's yeah. a Scottish philosopher who was a skeptic, pretty much. And so what Anscombe says is she says, listen, how do we know almost everything? Because of the testimony. And she uses a very, very big example. How do we know Julius Caesar was murdered? Everybody knows Julius Caesar was murdered. No one questions it. No one questions it. No one questions he crossed the Rubicon. The only evidence we have of the Rubicon is Is from Caesar. Is from Caesar. 
And the only evidence of his death is from, there is no eyewitness testimony of the entire event, guys. Sorry. <laughs> hmm. Nobody saw it and wrote it down. It is all from later testimony. People told the story. People told there the story. There wasn't a reporter on the scene. No. Yeah. But you can take from this, maybe we shouldn't trust that Julius Caesar was stabbed upwards of 27 times by his, you know, Senate. And we know why, because nobody's faith rises or falls on whether or not he was murdered, right? Why did the Bible get this special treatment, this special scrutiny? Because if the Bible's right, then a whole lot of people have to start doing their lives completely differently, right? Yeah, and that's a fair point. I mean, it's a lot is at stake, and the Bible should be scrutinized. We're not saying it shouldn't. We're, we work in a profession where that's encouraged, is to people to come to the scriptures and come with their best arguments. and. We're confident that our arguments can withstand. Uh, a couple of thoughts here. One, yeah, as you were saying, I think there's knowledge by experience and knowledge through a witness. And so much of my everyday experience is mediated or through the knowledge by a witness, the things I learned from friends. So much of what we know is based on testimony. And now think for a second of the way the apostles, the disciples learned from Jesus. They spent three years, according to the scriptural testimony, with Jesus, where you can imagine this exact scenario coming out. Think of Jesus this way. Jesus, and he says it in the Gospels, I come to testify about the Father. So Jesus is giving testimony about who the Father is, so that the disciples can then give testimony about Jesus, who Jesus is. And that's the church. The church is giving testimony through the last 2,000 years to what Jesus said about his testimony about the Father. And the way this was passed down was not in intermittent conversations. It was, here's who my father is. Did you get it right? No, no, no. Okay, Peter, you misunderstood. John, you misunderstood. Let me tell I mean, you how again. How can there be all these same stories throughout the whole gospel if there weren't things he said over and over and over again? Right. I would say, too, like we see this in our experience with students all the time. We just saw it relatively recently where a student got up and proclaimed the gospel, and it's things that we have said what the gospel is, almost word for It was word. a proud moment as a teacher. It, it certainly was. Yeah. And, and our children. Here's the stuff we've been teaching her coming right out of her mouth, teaching other people. It was yes. amazing. Yes. And so this is how, in this relationship, this relational testimony, which the game of telephone is not relational aside from the momentary passing of information, in which this knowledge is passed on. People, we should be proud of testimony. We certainly shouldn't be ashamed of it including in the biblical record, because, you know, and we're Catholics. We don't have our faith. It's not like a fundamentalist group where our faith hangs on every single thing in Scripture being perfectly accurate historically, literally. We're not fundamentalists that way. But at the same time, I feel like a lot of Catholics have retreated into this spiritualizing, moralizing, or allegorizing of the text because they think that most of it isn't reliable. And that's just not the case. There is so much of scripture that's reliable. And the early Christians, what they did was testify. That is what they did. It is the Old Testament and the New Testament. Testament means testimony. Right. And the Greek, ancient Greek word for testifier, martus, mm, where martyr. we get the word martyr. Martyrs were people who died because of their testimony, as it says in Revelation, to Jesus. Yeah. I wonder if there was a dynamic living translation we could have at the end of every story. 
Dude, for real, though. <laughs> like, don't spiritualize this away. Dude, for real, yeah, though. Yeah, Dude, for real, yeah, though, yeah. literally split the Red Sea. I'm not even joking. <laughs> it was crazy town. Yeah. Because if- Crazy sea. If you had so, if you had some way of making it clear to people, no, this is, this is real. I once had a friend point this out to me, and he's a lifelong Catholic, unknowingly in his own faith life, was slowly going toward the spiritualized, allegorized, this stuff is kind of, you know, it's sort of a story view. He said something like, do you really believe like this particular Old Testament story happened? I said, yeah. And he said, is it probable? I said, whether it happened is separable from the question of whether it's probable. Of course not. There's tons of things that aren't and so, probable. That's so why he was thinking, Exactly. People aren't raised from the dead. I get that. Nobody doesn't know that. It's not a slice of life novel where we're being told things that happened to everybody, right? We're being told fantastic stories because everyone knew they really stick out. This doesn't happen every day. And I will say that most of the scripture isn't that, though. Mm. Most of the Old Testament is prophets going on about things that that God, according to them, is angry about. Or like how crappy the kings of Israel were (laughs) and all the terrible things they did. It's chronicle. And here's the other thing, too. Oftentimes, what'll happen is they'll say, well, we know this didn't really happen because if you look at this Assyrian source, that's not how the Assyrians said it. And, you know, the Bible clearly has ideological reasons why they'd want it to happen this way. And it's like, well, that doesn't work either, brah, because you think the Assyrians didn't have the same ideological kinds of things, but theirs was for about Asher, their God, instead of Yahweh. You don't get to do that. Yeah, you're trying to use testimony against a testimony exactly. in a double standard way again. Exactly. And so even when they are criticizing the testimony of the Bible, they're doing it with other testimony that they don't have a necessary grasp on outside of that. In fact, here's the deal. The Old Testament gives us the most historical knowledge we have about the ancient Near East in the late Bronze Age and early Iron Ages. Yeah. And That's just the reality. There's so much we wouldn't know if it wasn't for the Bible. Yeah. When we close out here, let's pivot to history since you bring it up. Time and time again, the Jews are shown to have been right every time we have new archaeological evidence for something. That the it Old happens Testament, all the time. Yeah. I, I would say even in a New Testament example, I remember a story a couple of years ago, apparently for a while, they would say, you know, Jesus' famous discourse, for example, John 6, took place in a synagogue in Capernaum. Well, they never, apparently they never find a synagogue in Capernaum. So that kind of happened. Well, you know, about five, 10 years ago, they find a synagogue in Capernaum in the archaeological evidence. There's even modern examples we can point to, the hidden Christians of Japan. So St. Francis Xavier, a Jesuit, my patron saint, I picked him because of the X-Men, but (laughs) God will take silly things that an eighth grader thinks and and do something great with them. But he goes to Japan, he, he spreads Christ's gospel not too long after, there's a huge lockdown on all Christians in the country of Japan. The greatest genocide, I think, since the Roman Empire. Hundreds of thousands of Christians. It was a vibrant Catholic community. And so they go underground. They cannot write anything down. Everything has a double purpose. They have Buddha statues that are really Marian statues and, and, and so on. Over 200 years later, almost 300 years later, when the ban is lifted, and Catholic priests and missionaries are allowed to come back. What is it the hidden Christians have preserved? The perpetual virginity of Mary, the real presence of the Eucharist, the necessity of an ordained Catholic priest to confect the Eucharist, all distinctively, exclusively Catholic doctrines 
that no one wrote down, and there were no priests. With no institutional church, right? Yeah, no priests. Actively persecuted. And yet, boom. Yeah. Yeah. I want to conclude maybe with a story and then a way to tie this together. I am actually really convicted about the importance of oral testimony from a personal story in my life. Growing up, my grandmother uh, lived with us. She had an eighth grade education. And at a certain point, she stopped reading to us as kids. And she would just propose a story. She would just tell us stories. And it occurred to me much later in life, oh, my reading level had surpassed hers. So she, she was deferring by telling a story. So my grandmother used to tell us a story about how her grandfather, who I take my name from, Justino, had been part of a baronage in Italy, a baron. So He was a long, baron. He was a baron, Seriously. yeah. Uh, and so for the longest time, as I got older, I began to be suspicious about this because I saw no evidence for this. My great-grandfather, uh, great-great-grandfather came here with nothing, right? How was he a baron? Well, my sister was doing some genealogical research and connected through Ancestry.com. My sister connected with a, a relative in Rome who said, do you have a relative named Justino Colley? And my sister hadn't been able to get past that in her research. He connected us back in the genealogical history to the 14th century. Wow. Confirmed that the family had indeed been a baron. They had a castle. He sent us the coat of arms. And so wow. now, you know, Baron Justino Colley. Grandma uh, was right. Grandma in the oral testimony was 100% right. So I think one of the things I want to propose to listeners to you is like, again, we're not making a case that here we have our reasons for thinking that the, the New Testament and the Old Testament are reliable oral testimonies. But I think it's important to, to just recognize and take away that testimony can be verified and that you yourself, in a sense, engage if you're questioning Christianity or not sure or want to be firmer in your faith. There's a way to verify the testimony of the scriptures and of the tradition that the Catholic Church proposes through your own, in a sense, experience. Just as I verified that my grandmother's story about my great-great-grandfather was true, we do that in our experience, and there's many ways that that happens in the church. So this is, this is really just an invitation to go deeper. Well, listeners, we've been many places today, and we thank you for joining us on this journey. And hopefully you share this testimony that you've received today. If you like and subscribe to our podcast, we'd be very grateful. And if you'd share it with a friend who you think might be interested in the topics that we're engaging with. And with that, I sign off. This is Justin Aquila. This is Alex Giltner. This is Lewis Pearson. Listeners, until we meet again, find Christ in 10,000 places. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.